You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week's topic is denial and deception. We talk D-Day, the Yom Kippur War, the Persian Gulf War, and much more. Denial and deception clearly goes way back. Sun Tzu said all warfare is based on deception, and so much of the natural world is based on denial and deception operations. Camouflage, feigning, mimicry, distraction, and the cheeky cuckoo that tries to pass its egg off as that of another bird. It is also a feature of our 21st century daily lives. Spyware, Trojan horses, spearfishing. With this week's guest, however, we look at the Denial and Deception Committee, which aim to discover and mitigate foreign denial and deception operations against the US by coordinating efforts across the intelligence community. Bill Parquet was a former chair of the committee, which he joined in 2002 and left in 2015. He was formerly a lieutenant colonel in the US Army and is currently professor of practice at Penn State University. We cover foreign denial and deception, what is it and why does it matter? How you detect denial and deception operations? How to avoid seeing monsters everywhere? And how children and car salespeople use denial and deception all the time? And the books that you can read to counter their efforts. If you go to the cyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you will see a link to a handy document Bill put together that breaks down some of the acronyms and lists the sources he mentions. On that page, you will find our extensive show notes to help you dig deeper into the subject matter of all of our episodes. We have notes and links to help deepen your understanding, a quote of the week, 
resources, including books, videos, and primary sources. And one of my favorites, a wildcard resource that could be a Marvel comic, a classic novel, or a punk album related to that week's episode. You can consume all of this to promote growth and improve performance. Think of it like a protein shake for your brain. I'm so glad that we're getting a chance to speak about this topic, which I find particularly fascinating. So a lot of our listeners may not have heard of this. So let's just set out our stall and tell us a little bit more about what we're talking about, Bill. What is the Denial and Deception Committee? Denial and Deception Committee really no longer exists in in the form that I left it in. But nevertheless, it is a committee that is designed to discover and try to solve what an adversary or what our competitors are doing to us. It is designed to do analysis and do hopefully warning of deceptions targeting the United States government, targeting the intelligence community, and et cetera. So that's its function, to do analysis and to try to determine who's doing what and what are they doing? When are they going to do it? So in that sense, it's less conducting denial and deception operations in another country. It's more trying to discover and analyze and, and root out denial and deception operations in the United States. So it's more, if you think about it like a physician, it's more you're constantly checking the oxygen levels and the blood pressure and the BMI to try to discover any anything that's not the way it should be rather than trying to do that to a different organism. Is that correct? Yes. It's attempting to stay on top of what an adversary may do next. Or say you're, you're an analyst and you're, something just doesn't look right. There's an anomaly or an incongruity. It just doesn't make sense, a piece of evidence. So you follow that through. And the committee itself, where I worked, orchestrated a lot of this throughout all of the other agencies. Of course, there certainly were analysts on the committee itself, but it was mostly to orchestrate the discipline and to orchestrate and coordinate analysis throughout. It is to designed to, for instance, the Russians, they have a template and they used the template, they used that template in Georgia, they used it in Syria, they used it in Ukraine the first time, and it's a template they used. So you can take that template and overlay it on potentially future operations. And that's what the committee does. It, it kind of looks at that and then reports on it through through briefings and through, that's what it used to do, and through written products through mm-hmm. the National Intelligence Council. And tell us when the committee was around, because it's not around, as you said, in the form that you once knew any longer, and it's not been there since the dawn of time either. So give us a chronology of the site Denial and Deception Committee. And again, I refer to you back to the Bruce article, but and I know we're going to talk about that later. So in its current form, or, or again, when I left it three years ago, it that was conceived back in the 80s. And the article refers to two periods where we peaked. Under Casey and the Reagan administration in the 1980s, and that was called the Denial Deception Analysis Center. And then it peaked again during DCI Wolsey's time 
in the uh, mid-1990s, where Woolsey was all about training and all about education and all about informing the intelligence community. So those were the two peak times. And it was called different things over the 80s. And then we had a down period because the Cold War ended and everyone looks around and looking for resources and why do we need this group? And then Woolsey came in and said, this is like not educating and training and doing deception analysis is like having a Navy where you don't teach them how to swim. That's a great, that's a great quote. So... And that's the current form. When I joined it in 2002, we had 37 folks working for us. When I say us, and I was just one of them. And that was included independent contracts, then included the big, a bigger package. And when I left, as I was the chairman, and when I left in 19, 2019, I was the chairman at that time, and there was one other person there, and he left about two months after I did. But in its form and in its lineage, it needs to be resurfaced. And we could talk about internal and external advocates for this discipline, mm-hmm. because it really is a discipline that we're concerned with. Help me understand the composition of the committee. How big was it? Who staffed it? Who was on it? What was their skill set? And there's only so much I can I can delve into. But the it, it really, if you look at it at, at the national level, it orchestrated a community of many analysts and many people that in DIA and in other agencies that woke up every day concerning themselves with denial and concerning themselves with deception. And so that's the committee orchestrated this wealth of uh, very educated and trained and professional analysts throughout all the agencies that were functionally focused and regionally focused, Russian analyst, John analyst, and et cetera. But on the committee itself, we had we had somebody in charge of training and education. That was me. We had a staff director and orchestrated the staff. We had folks doing science and technology things. We had folks doing tactical camouflage and, and netting, and, which is important work. And we had folks looking at space. It was folks looking at all sorts of things within the committee, but really the key function of, of the chairman and the key function of the committee was to orchestrate the community and resource the community and put the community in the direction that the chairman felt and then the DCI and and director of ODNI felt that we ought to go in. And usually it was it was just what's next on a target? What's next on the horizon? What's the incongruity we see here? And what potentially, kind of like warning, what's potentially is around the next corner. If And it has a lot to do with what we call, and this is an overused phrase, but we call the deception family, mom and pop and even Moses. Anytime we see an incongruity or, hey, something might be happening here, we don't know what, and maybe it's not deception. We, the last thing you ever want to do is call everything deception because sometimes, okay, maybe it is, but there's no impact to it. And so you move on. There's many things to do before the day ends. So you move on, but you always want to know what the motive is. Deception is an action. And so if a adversary is taking the time to deceive, then you want to know what the motive is. You want to know why. So you investigate the motive and see if you can, and then look at the opportunity. Do they have the opportunity to actually do this? And do they have the means uh, 
Are they capable? And that's where you get into past practices, which is pop. That was mom. This is pop. Past opposition practices. So just as an example, Iranian proliferation and their desire, potential desire for nuclear capability. Okay. So if you see an, an anomaly or integrity, something doesn't make sense. What's the motive? Okay. Maybe we have a motive. Do they have the opportunity? Yeah. And do they have the means? Are they capable of doing what we're seeing or what we think is happening? So you go through that checklist and then you get into, have they ever done it in the past? What is it, and what does it look like? That's the example with, with the Russians in the, in the lead up in the four or five countries we talked about. So have they ever done it in the past? So that's mom and pop. Even Moses, is, their two kids, is evaluation of evidence, which you do with analysis and manipulation of sources or sources manipulated. Mm-hmm. And who would the chairman or the committee report to? Would that be to the DCI and then the, the DNI? The committee, again, when I left it and still does, it sits at the on the National Intelligence Council, the NIC. And so the reporting element would be to the chairman of the NIC and then to ODNI uh, and its directors, its deputy directors and directors of ODNI. Mm-hmm. And prior to that would be DCI. Well, I think a, a good way to maybe try to get into it now would, would be to give us an example, if you can. It doesn't have to be current. It could be from history. Give us an example of what we're talking about here. Give us an example of something that the, the discipline had uncovered. There's many illustrations to find the discipline. The one that's used often is the uh, Yom Kippur, the October 73 war. So <clears throat> Anwar Sadat decided in 72, November 72, that I'm going to go to war in a year. And he did so using denial and using deception very well. And he had all the principles of deception, with, which is operational security. He communicated only through courier Hiding in plain sight, he he publicly stated, we are not good combat force. The Israelis have been really kicking kicking our, our, our butt, if you, excuse the expression, for several years, for the six-day war and through several years since 67. We're going to go out and train, if, if you don't mind. And he publicly stated this. So he did training exercises throughout the summer of 73. Many different training exercises. Each time he did training exercises, he was showing a force that couldn't coordinate with the Syrians, couldn't coordinate with anybody else. It wasn't efficient. Every time he'd go to to the water's edge, he'd leave caches of munitions and things. So he did that all summer long. He did that in April when it started off on an exercise, and the Israelis mobilized. And they said, okay, we're going to war. This is it. He publicly stated, I told you. We're just, we're, we're not efficient. He played into the Israeli biases and predispositions of this is not a good combat force. He kept on training throughout the summer. It's like crying wolf. The bottom line is he kept on going. And then when he went 6, 7 October 1973, when he went, the Israelis did mobilize. They did a few hours later, but it was too late. And they call this either a very successful deception or the Israelis failing to anticipate. Because... Sadat knew that he couldn't win, couldn't do it, but he didn't want to win. He just wanted to bring the superpowers to the table, and he did it with very successful denial and very successful deception. And 
the failure to anticipate of we we just we know what we're going to lose, but he held ground for about three and a half weeks and brought the superpowers to the table, which is then the Soviet Union and, of course, the United States. And he, he ended the uh, uh, no war, no peace. They ended that hostility, at least for the foreseeable future. So that's one example, decent example of denial and deception. Have, are we evolve, if we're evolving into the discipline, and maybe we're not, but it, I'll give you the story anyways. I consider it any time I walk into a car dealership, I'm dealing with denial and I'm dealing with deception. And I'm dealing with predispositions and I'm dealing with biases. And that dealer and that salesperson will play to my biases and predispositions and they'll scope me out almost immediately. And their job is to keep me on that lot. And then I'm cautious. It's a fascinating example of, of manipulation, a fascinating example of denial. Uh, and it's just back and forth as I've just, you know, insulted car dealerships around the world. But <laughs> that's another example. And the other example I use, you know, usually if I have an audience of one or 100, I ask, does anyone have children? And, you know, the hands get raised. And, and then I said, okay, did you teach your child deception or denial? And, of course, they all said, of course not. Do they conduct denial or deception? And they all said, yeah. <laughs> it's throughout nature. It's throughout society. We talk our way out of it as as children get older. Uh, but it's a natural thing to deny. I didn't, Mom, I didn't, I didn't take that cookie. Uh, uh, or, or, or deception, you know. So it, it's just... It's naturally, you, you fall into it. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a great example. I find the Yom Kippur War really, really interesting. So let's stick with that. What's the, what was the denial part of that operation and what was the deception part? Of, of course, with the communication. He only used, he used couriers. He used his normal communication channels, which he knew was manipulated and was being listened to and sometimes being listened to by us but mostly by the Israelis. Uh, and we were sharing intelligence with the Israelis anyways, and we had other intelligence apparatus that we could share with them. Nevertheless, so when he didn't want something to be picked up, he would uh, use couriers. He would communicate with, because he did coordinate and collaborate with the Syrians, and he did, of course. Now, his his army, said general officers, did not know they were going to war until they actually went. So he kept everything with operational security. So denial, that's part of the, what he denied. He denied communications. When he had something to say to folks, he would only say it again, person to person, and then escort that courier to wherever he wanted the information to go. But when he wanted to manipulate, when he wanted to deceive, and de deception is an action, when he wanted to deceive, then he would say something through what he knew to be an open communication channel that was going to get picked up. And so he would say things that he wanted people to hear. He would, part of the denial, to go back, was the uh, caches of ammunition. Every time he did a training exercise, he moved equipment forward. Uh, and, and when he moved it forward, to his launch point for the attack, he'd just either bury it or he'd camouflage it, which is denial, a, cam a form of camouflage. Camo putting a net over a vehicle is denying information to an adversary. When you put a camouflage net up over and then at night you move 
the equipment under from that's underneath that camouflage net, keeps the camouflage net up, but move the equipment elsewhere. Well, now you've you've just crossed the line into a deception because you've kept the camouflage net up. There's nothing under it. They're singing that same camouflage net and now put the equipment somewhere else. And he did all of the above. So I'm just thinking of another example, D-Day. So yeah. the denial part would be the operational security, making sure that not everybody knew that it was going to happen, that certain protocols and procedures were followed, basically just trying to protecting information. But then the deception part would be the bodyguard of lies. That would be the fictional first US Army group that Patton was going to be leading. It would be suggesting that it was going to be the Pas de Calais instead mm-hmm. of Normandy. That would be the deception part. Is that right? Yeah, Another fascinating story. Matter of fact, there were 35 different deception plans surrounding the D-Day invasion, which started in January of 44 and lasted all the way through to December, the entire year, all surrounding and protecting that invasion force. To include one was one deception operation was led by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And David Niven worked worked this business, so it, it's fascinating, but I don't want to segue. I'll answer, let me get to your question. And the other thing that they had to consider, and you have to consider with any deception, is what can be hidden and what cannot be hidden. You can't hide the fact that you have an invasion force that's going to norm. It, that can't be hidden. But you can potentially deceive the adversary into thinking that's a reinforcing, the real force. And one of the things that you always have to consider with deception, so de- deception is a heavy, heavy consumer of intelligence. You have to know your adversary and who you're attempting to deceive. And you, so you've got to, at, at best you can, crawl into the mindset of that adversary. So what did the Germans think and the uh, German intelligence apparatus and the others and Canaris, what did they think? They, so we, need to, we needed to know that. And they thought the most successful general at that time, and that's just my bias, but it's Patton. He had uh, done very successfully in Sicily, done very successfully in North Africa, and et cetera. So <clears throat> we're going to surround a complete false army, and we're going to use decoys, we're going to use deception, we're going to use denial, we're going to use the entire discipline surrounding this general officer. Meanwhile, we're going to lead a force, which is the actual force, into Normandy. The intent, the whole purpose and intent of that was to freeze, I think it was 14 Ponza divisions, north protecting Calais and waiting for Patton. At least delay them enough so we can get a landing force and we can get enough forces so we're not going to be kicked off that beach. And that was quite success. That was successful because they never committed. They committed way too late. They committed three and a half weeks later, I believe. And so it was a very successful deception. And they can, but if you look at the entire story, the 35 different deception plans, they had deception plans in Southern Europe. They had deception plans in Norway. They had deception plans covering and masking all sorts of items. And the other thing you've got to consider with this discipline is if you're telling a story, and it's a good story, you're crafting a good story, your adversary can't afford to ignore it. They, can't, they have to do something with what you're telling them. It's the, same thing with, it's the same thing if an adversary is deceiving us. They're targeting us. 
they know if they craft the message. And sometimes it's just noise. But we have to do something with that information. We're going to have to consume scarce resources to figure out what's happening, what is potentially going on here. So you're going to divert assets, meaning analysts and collectors and, and et cetera, to try to figure out what's happening here. Meanwhile, the shiny keys in the corner over here, which we may or may not see, or we may see too late. The other thing, criteria, is uh, deceptions only have to be good enough, really. With Schwarzkopf and the person Gulf War, and that was the one I was in, he only had to be good enough. He only had to be good enough in order to get that core on the end or out. And so he denied he denied, he took his eyes, he took his ears, and he put this shiny key in the, and my son's a Marine, so I love the Marine Corps, but he showed and displayed a Marine Expeditionary Force. I mean, it's the United States Marine Corps. They even did a rehearsal, which Dan Rather picked up on the news prior to the war kicking off. Marine Expeditionary Force doing an, an invasion off the coast. So his eyes are looking at the Marines, okay, where they're going to land and what the, what's going on here, while they were a part of a uh, uh, part of the story. And he's got his end around coming around. So, again, it, what can be hidden, what can't be hidden. Obviously, Saddam knew we were going north. The Germans knew there's an invasion, but it's not the real invasion. We'll put some forces there, clearly. We'll attempt to stop that, but we're going to save our, our real assets for the real invasion. What are the things that people that are trying to detect deception look for? So if you're a doctor and you're looking for, they've got high blood pressure or proteins in their blood or something like that, how do you pick up on it? What are the telltale signs? So this certificate program was to train and educate analysts into deception detection, uh, into to be a deception analyst. And there's 750 of them in the community right now doing all good work. We would, throughout the entire year, it was five-course program, throughout the entire year, we would always talk about deceptions. We did Yom Kippur. We did uh, Normandy. We did them all. And we had a student ask once, why are we talking about deceptions, successful, you know, I'm an analyst. He said, because if we show you, and we did it all the time, if we show you deceptions, successful or not successful, and we do it often, and, we, and it's redundant, then maybe you can reverse engineer. Maybe you know what to look for. So with the Israeli, and, the, and this is The Watchman Fell Asleep is a great book that, that describes the 73 war. But and again, a lot of it has to do with they never considered it. Yet one of the things we use is decoders, the analysis of competing hypothesis. And so we would always emphasize, be a healthy skeptic. And there's many times in our lineage in the intelligent community where we cherry-picked evidence to support the foregone conclusion. You may have a chosen one, and you may be biased into selecting evidence, but if you consider other hypotheses and other courses of action, what if it's not this? So for the 73 war, what if these aren't training exercises? Or what if, so be a healthy skeptic. Be willing to wonder and ask questions. I drive my wife crazy because I'm always, what about this and what about this? And she wants to throw something at me and I don't blame her. So I would say for both exercises, for the Germans, okay, what if this, just let's think about this for a minute. What do we actually know about the army and the decoys? Now, the counterintelligence folks had rolled up a lot of the German assets uh, that were spying on, 
on patent and looking at the decoys and discovering certain things. And then, you know, so you know all about double cross. And then they were feeding false information to their handlers, but we didn't get them all. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I'm just thinking just now, so you can apply this discipline to larger scale events like the Normandy invasion or the Yom Kippur war. Can you also apply this to micro level cases? So I'm just thinking before the interview began, we were talking about Hansen. Hansen was carrying out his own denial and deception operation and Kim Philby was too, right? Because he was posing as one thing, but actually he was something else. Yeah. No, absolutely. Hansen, again, a fascinating case, but he was, a lot of his was ego and arrogance, but he was, he crafted a deception that lasted 20 years and he literally was hiding in plain sight. I had a student, you've got to write a thesis to get this degree in NIU. So I had a student who wrote a fascinating piece on failure to confront. He interviewed people that worked with Hanson and worked with Ames. And he interviewed in terms of, did you see anything? And then, you know, why didn't you take it to the next level and failure to confront? Hanson used to walk out of the building and was caught multiple times with classified documents in his briefcase. And he was a very senior guy. And he would always say, I don't worry about it. Go to a meeting. I'll wrap it up when I get there. And I'm coming right back to the office. He was right. He did come back to the office, but the paperwork didn't. And, um, he would have these trash bags filled with classified information, which he would put under the bridge at Nottoway Park, which was a park literally across the street from his house. So that was all, that was a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of hiding in plain sight, and, but clearly denial and clearly deception, especially when he was in the office and he got caught. It, it, what a fascinating story. I would, I would love to know the story of when he was literally caught hacking into his boss's computer. Now, did he preconceive this story or did he just off the fly say, well, I'm checking operational security. I want to make sure that we are secure, even though he's taking stuff from his boss's computer and giving it to the Soviet. His story immediately when he was caught is, I'm just checking to make sure we're, we're all secure here. And I do wonder if was that something, okay, I'm going to have this story ready to go in the can if I'm caught doing this or did it just come to me? Come to who knows? You've got to have a. You've got to be able to tell a good story. That's what a deceiver is, anyways. I'm thinking this obviously has a lot of applicability for the intelligence community and for the world of intelligence. But you could apply it much more broadly, right? You could say, like the TV cop Columbo. Part of what he does is being a one man denial and deception committee because he's trying to find out whether some of his leading suspects are on the up and up or whether they're 
denying him information or whether they're trying to deceive him to implicate someone else. And you could say like Sherlock Holmes or other examples. like Jack Frost. Jack Frost, just part of the human story, denial and deception. But of course it has very pointed and specific application for the intelligence community. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And thanks for bringing that up because it's a pretty good analogy. And you can spin that analogy in many different ways. Now I'm talking about Columbo and my wife and I just, what do you call that? Streamed all of Jack Frost in, in all of the 14 seasons in like uh, in a week. Wow. It wasn't quite a week, but nevertheless, <laughs> Columbo was always just one more thing, just one more. So he was always willing to wonder, always wanted just another question. He was always saying, this just doesn't make sense. And that... It, we would say often when we travel around the world representing the committee uh, and our boss and travel, if I don't mention Kent Tierney's name, he's going to kill me. Nevertheless, we would always want to know, just be willing to wonder. And sometimes, sometimes people don't want to hear bad news. You, you walk in, like if you're an analyst working at defense intelligence and you're a deception analyst and, and you, what you're doing is telling the boss, News that they don't want, they don't want to hear. I used the term, which was used in Bruce's article, of uh, the fire at Rabda in Libya, because he uses that in the text box. <clears throat> now, here's a here's an analyst, young, tenacious analyst. Now, the entire entire intelligence community says there's there's a fire in this facility, and it's destroyed, and it's no longer functional. And here's how we know this. We have human sources, we have imagery, we have all of these ints, we have all of these things telling us that there's a fire. So there's this one tenacious little analyst over at uh, Bowling who's, who said he was a volunteer fireman, I believe, in Vienna, Vienna, Virginia. And he said, you know, I've seen fires and this is not making a lot of sense. And so he started talking about this and he, he had a lot of help. And But this is the community now and there's publications and the White House has decided we're not going to do anything with this facility that doesn't work anymore. And that's what a deception analyst does. He, tenacious, he sticks to it. He's willing to take rejection or be thrown out of people's offices. Being a little bit melodramatic, but uh, nevertheless, he stuck to it. And in about a month and a half or whatever it took, he was able to turn the community around and said, hey, we got this one on, and here's why and here's how. But the Libyans knew how to feed us information. They knew how, what we looked for and, and you know, we gravitated towards human intelligence or we gravitated towards uh, imagery, we gravitated towards other things. They fed us all the right information. And it makes all the sense in the world when you look at the evidence and said, why well, we said, okay, here's a fire. But this one analyst who discovered that there are no emergency vehicles ever showed up to the site. And oh, by the way, vehicles coming in with tires and coming in with all sorts of other stuff. And so it was a deliberate fire to show that the facility. So that's, you'd kind of want the analyst to be able to, as you said, your analogy, Columbo or Jack Frost or whomever, Ask a couple of more questions and be able to develop another course of action. And sometimes you may only have hours. You may have hey, the boss wants something on his desk by five because he's going to go downtown at six and talk about this. And it's one o'clock in the afternoon. So you may not have a lot of time, but even then you should consider at least as best you can. 
it sounds like the kind of career where it's very difficult to get promoted because you're constantly <laughs> you're constantly telling your boss that he might be wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a that's an excellent point. You're not constantly telling the boss. Oh, by the way, have we considered this? And if they've made a decision, that's fine. But have we considered? You're always bringing up certain points. Have we thought about this? Because that's extremely important in this particular discipline to be able to at least be a healthy skeptic of what you're seeing. Is if is what we're seeing, is that something they're showing us? Is that something deliberate? Is that something they want us to see? Or is it, did we just get lucky? Mm. Wow, it sounds like quite an interesting skill set that's required. Yeah. People love, people hate a glad fly, right? Since Socrates, going up to a general, what's courage? How dare you ask me that? I'm a general, of course I know what courage is, but he's trying to dig into the deeper nature of it. But I was just thinking as well, just to go back to the analogy that we used. So Col Columbo, it, it seems to me that he would detect, he would listen carefully to the story that his suspects would say. And he had just this, something's not right about the story. And he would look at the material evidence and so forth, but quite often it came back to their, something about their story is just not quite right. So you you mentioned the importance of story, but with Sherlock Holmes, he pay, plays comparatively less attention to the what the suspects are saying and much more attention to the material evidence. But for Sherlock Holmes, the stories and the evidence, but for Columbo, the stories and the oral recounting of the events. Yeah. So I guess there's different ways to look for something in a story that's not right. One of the things I cover in my uh, intelligence environment course is what, what I call the analyst environment. What is an analyst today? What are they facing? What, is, what happens in their little office or cubicle? It's information overload. Look at all of the volumes upon volumes upon volumes of information. And the other thing we're competing against, of course, is the boss sees something. Where does he get the information first? He gets it from cable news. He gets it from real-life news. Boss is already probably preconceived to think certain things. And now you're walking in there and maybe you're just reinforcing what he already believes and that's fine because maybe talk the boss through and maybe talk him off a ledge and say, we have to at least consider a couple more things. And you know what the intelligence community does, it collects secrets by secret means. So that's the layer and the lens that the community puts on, you know, information. And it's not a competition. They complement each other, but that's kind of the environment you've got to deal with. You're walking in, the boss has already seen 14 different news stories about something he's about to ask you about. And you've got to walk in there and also complement that information with the additional information you've got. So that's, you know, the analyst environment that they've got to deal with as well. And for the people that were looking at, looking for the deceptions, would this be the deception analyst from across the intelligence community and the all of their information would flow to the committee and the committee would decide what was and what wasn't a deception or what should be reported up to the chair of the National Intelligence Council or how did it work? You had your own team of analysts that just focused on what you used, what did you just task it and tell it to look for things or, yeah, how, how did it integrate across the rest of the intelligence community? In its day, every single agency, and DIA had, it, had its... It, 
the largest, but every single agency had analysts that woke up every morning and dealt with deception, either through functional or through regional. But that was their account. And DIA in its day, I think, had 35 or 40 analysts that, again, did functional and regional things. But all the agencies had deception analysts. And so they were doing the day-to-day stuff. And then when they saw something, they would feed it up through their normal uh, reporting elements. But they were constant contact with us. And every month, monthly, we'd sit down with all of these as a committee and as a and a committee chair with the chair at the head of the table and talk about and there's always an agenda but it would always talk about things that are happening throughout the community and so every single month you were able to lay eyes on on folks a representative from from defense a representative from from all the agencies to include the service intel centers O and I and others would all sit around the table with the chairman and with us and. But the reporting would always go through there. But if there's something that we would always see the reporting and we'd ask and call in it. I'll give you one example. We had a graduate uh, of our program, the, the graduate program called PDASP, Denial and Deception Advanced Studies Program at NIU. That no longer exists. But we had an analyst who was a Navy analyst. He was afloat in the Persian Gulf. He was seeing something that just didn't make sense to him. Something's happening here. I'm not sure what. So they only had my email. They had my contact information. So he reached out to me, and and I immediately put him in touch with folks on the committee and put him in touch with – I stepped away. My background is I'm I'm an operator. I'm not an analyst. But they formed their own deception working group, a dog, to – Try to figure out, okay, what are you saying and what could it be? And and let's talk about and they did the old mom and pop thing. It worked it worked great. And so he because initially when he would go to his his boss afloat and say, here's what I think is happening, you know, he was a young kid. They didn't throw him out, but well, prove it. I need more. If you're gonna come to me with this, not a problem. You're doing a good work, but just give me more. And so he reached out to me only because he knew I could put him in touch with the people they needed. And we did, and, and they did great work. So I guess that's another example of how the committee would function. We had people that, that dug in deep, that did analyst analysis on certain things, but mostly it was an executive committee that orchestrated and coordinated and published things. Um, that, matter of fact, how the committee in its current form when I left it three years ago, conceived out of the uh, National Intelligence Estimate on Russia in uh, 98, I believe, 96 or 98. You know, we published, we informed at the executive level, but more importantly, we orchestrated all of the heroes and all of the folks throughout all of the community and the world, what they're seeing, and then we just put our lens on it and then worked them through the publication process and got them visibility. Mm -hmm. And tell us about the sources of information that you would be combing through. Would it be, you know, it wouldn't be at the at the level of the detection of deception um, techniques or using a polygraph and so forth, you know, at the most micro level, but are you looking at statistics? Are you looking at imagery intelligence, signals intelligence, human intelligence, all of the above? All of the above. And again, this is probably a good time to talk about my, I'm a, Again, I'm an operator, uh, and I was hired for the committee to run a graduate that graduate program I referred to, and to do training and to do outreach. Uh, and I entered the intelligence community through the back door. I entered the intelligence community uh, as an operator. 
and then I evolved into the committee itself and then grew through the ranks. But throw another acronym at you, STD. It's not what you think, but, you know, when I use that in a lecture, it always gets a laugh or two. See, think, do. That's another deception analyst tool is if you're a deceiver, which I was, and I have the unique experience of working on both sides of the fence, red and blue. But if you're a deceiver, what do you want to show your adversary? What do you want them to think and perceive? And then what action? What do you want them to do? And if you're a deception analyst, there's a few or four or five or six pieces of information I'm seeing here over time. And I'm just not sure what's going on. Okay, so if you consider, okay, maybe it's manipulation and maybe they're trying to de- try to get us to do something. I don't know, but maybe. Well, what do they want us to do? So you reverse the STD. What do, you, what do they want us to do? And what are they attempting to think and perceive? And what are they showing us to get us to take an action? Because deception is all about getting your opponent, number one, to consume resources, to try to figure out your story. And, but more importantly, to either take an action or an inaction and do nothing, which is sometimes even more important, the inaction. And tell us a little bit more about your career, Bill. When you were talking there, it reminded me of earlier in our conversation where I I was saying that, you know, it would make sense to have operators involved in all of this. Um, So tell me a little bit more about how you got into the world of intelligence. I spent 22 years in the Army. Got into 79, left in summer of 2001 in the field artillery. Artillery. So the last five years of active duty entered this world. And it's a funny story. I was at Fort Hood, Texas, working for the Corps commander. And um, I'm on orders now to go to Carlisle Barracks, the Army War College, not as a student, but to work in the operations shop. Now, so I got a call from a friend of mine who we've been in communication, but this is somebody I served with at the 82nd Air War and we jumped out of airplanes together when we were lieutenants. And now I'm a lieutenant colonel. So this is 22 years before. So he, he said, hey, I've got a job that you might be interested in. I said, where is it? He said, it's in the capital region. Okay, where? Can't tell you. <laughs> it's, it's, what, it's one of these, th- well, what's the job? Well, I'm not even sure, but you'd be a planner. So that's kind of how I crossed that bridge. And, and it's luck and opportunity. And two years later, I'm on this, the beast of committee, and he literally hired me to run the graduate certificate program that he conceived. And that's what I did for, for the length of the program. And I was doing other things, outreach. And, and so Bill Perkett was not an analyst. Bill Perkett was not a trained and educated intelligence officer. Bill Perkett entered this uh, as an operator, fascinated with it, did many different things and traveled the world, training and educating and, and consulting. And then when I was full-fledged on the committee, I would work with many different organizations throughout the world, not just talking about this discipline, but coordinating hey, something's happening here. Can you take a look at it? Yes, I will. Who can I talk to? And I put them in touch with the experts. But (laughs) I don't want to walk away from the interview on the downside because we put through 750 students that are still in the community, still doing excellent work. I was thinking about Abel Archer there for a second. With Abel Archer, the Soviets thought that it was a denial and deception operation. The 83 scare. The 83 scare. And it was going to be, NATO was going to attack the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. 
but it was actually just an exercise with nuclear weapons and for other reasons that could quickly have escalated out of control. So I guess that's a way of framing the next question is, how do you avoid just seeing monsters everywhere? How do you avoid, here's a deception, Abel Archer, if you're a Soviet analyst, well, that's a, that's a deception, they're going to like attack us. How, how do you avoid becoming an alarmist? The sky is falling everywhere that you see. I oh, guess that's it. a real problem. Yeah. You're right. No, that, that is a sincere and real problem. And that's sometimes some of the risk. You've got to be tenacious. You've got to go back to that analyst back, um, the Libyan analyst, who was tenacious and polite and respectful. You know, have we considered this? And you can't go out of channels. You've got to work with the boss you're working with. You, you can't go around. That would... That's just insanity. You've got to be able to work with the environment you're in. But you're right. We've had people that go off the rails thinking that here's what I'm saying, and this is the issue, and I don't care if you don't believe me or not, I'm going to tell whoever will listen to me. That's the extreme. Mm -hmm. And that's the the other function of the committee. They'd come to us first. We'd vet it. We'd take a look at it. uh, And... And if they need it, nine times out of ten, they didn't need any counseling from us. If they needed a little help selling a message, then we would do that if we could. And forgive the inner Columbo or skeptic in me, but is, <laughs> is this a denial and deception operation? Are you leading me down the garden path? Am I, does this denial and deception committee even exist or are you just, are you just stringing me along? Tell you what. <laughs> I'll tell you I'm what. Just, I'm just teasing, of course. No, I, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm pulling out an article from, where did this come from? I think CNN, or maybe U.S. News and World Report, talking about the committee. And the article is from August 2016. I believe it's August. White House asked Deception Committee to study Russian hacks. These leaks and these little sorts of little articles have always been out and about, and it's mostly just garbage, but it existed for quite some time, well publicized, and I know you're just kidding, but, and Jim Bruce and and his article laid out its lineage and also the caution, and he also laid out ways that we can resurface, and I, I, I do believe that's being worked. You mentioned the Jim Bruce article, which I will post in the show notes for the podcast on our website, but are there any other sources that you would recommend our listeners uh, look at if they want to learn a little bit more about this? Is there a book that compares and contrasts the the Yom Kippur War, the Revolutionary War, the D-Day landings and so forth? Or can we expect that book at some point in the future from Bill Parkett? Because uh, be like I book. said, I, I, listened, I listened to, <laughs> and th- you brought up a, uh, an excellent point. Uh, I listened to previous podcasts and half of them had books. I'm being, and of course, the dean is, is going to call me out on this because part of my duties, I, I, I'm three years ago when I got there, a colleague walked up to me and, and wanted to know my background and we were talking for a while. And I said, look, I'm not an academic. I'm here to teach because I love teaching. And she said, well, you are an owl. You're here at Penn State, you are an academic. And so part of my duties is to research and to publish. So to answer your question, of course, we've got the Bruce article, Deception 101, the Primer on Deception by Joseph Cadell, C-A-D-D-E-L-L, and you could post this. So it, for resources for your listeners, Military Deception and Strategic Surprise, editors by Gooch and Perlmutter. That's an excellent, excellent book. And these 
just go back some time. The Cadella is 2004. The one I just mentioned is 82. But Joe Gordon has got rearmament, or Brian Gordon, I stand corrected, German rearmament. I know we didn't talk about that because there's so many, but the German rearmament, if you look at the German rearmament from 19, the Versailles Treaty, but you pick it up around 1932 and it goes all the way to the, really the start of the war. Fascinating, fascinating denial and deception study on how they literally in plain sight built an entire army and air force. Incredibly incredible. Bart Whaley has two texts. Oh, well, he, he worked for our committee for some time as an author and he's got several books out. Gordon and Wirtz is the one I was, Roy Gordon, uh, Godson and James Wirtz, another one. Thaddeus Holt, The Deceivers. And Walter Jaco, Deception Appeal for Acceptance. And uh, John Latimer, Deception of War and the Art of the Bluff. Wow. If you want to get a good price on your next car when you get into the dealer, <laughs> listen to this podcast and check out those sources. It's been, it's been a pleasure to speak to you about. <laughs> uh, well, look, uh, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed this. Thanks ever so much for your time, Bill. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTL SpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts. The International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.